Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we're going to talk about the increasingly important topic of self-sovereign identity, which many see as the next horizon for how citizens, companies, and governments manage our data. And I'm really excited to be joined by Aravind Smith. She's the author of Identity Reboot and a leading speaker and expert in the self-sovereign identity space. Aravind, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm going to start with the usual question. Tell us a little bit about how you started working in blockchain and self-sovereign identity specifically. Well, like most in the space, I did not set out to work with blockchain technology. I was actually drawn in via an entrepreneur in residence program of all places in the in the automotive sector around 2015. So I was entrepreneur in residence at InMotion Ventures. And what we did is that we were looking at the wider mobility space. So how can we actually revolutionize transportation? And one of the very first things that we were looking at was data. All these cars were going to be connected one day. We knew that much. We knew that people's attitude towards uh, transportation and moving from A to B were changing. It was extending far beyond traditional vehicles. And the area that interested us most was if all these vehicles are producing data, in fact, you are creating a type of data economy. And can we leverage that aspect, that data economy, to create something that is more sustainable, more equitable, and that works for all stakeholders? So we started to dive deeper and deeper into that. And at the beginning, we didn't even think about blockchain technology. We thought, what we're going to do is we're going to create a simple API type of marketplace, kind of similar to Rapid API. Uh, we'll create a unified API on the back end, and we're going to create a system where all these different sensors can aggregate the data, eventually de-identify the data, and then share it and use it in a more, in a privacy-proof uh, but useful way. Now, what we realized, and this is obviously thought out by someone who is not from automotive, is that the stakeholder management on the back of that was tremendously optimistic. Let's call it optimistic. It, it's, it's a very, very complex ecosystem. It's a very, very complex and ancient industry uh, with deep-rooted norms and values and uh, established relationships. So getting all these people in the same room and collaborate proved to be a hell of a challenge. So what we came up with, and that's when we started turning toward blockchain technology, was what if we could apply tokenization to the mobility sector? And from there, I was just absolutely drawn into the rabbit hole. So I started to dig deeper into tokenization, into the commons, into self-sustaining ecosystems. It became very obvious very quickly that identity was broken in the real world, let's say, in our current system of, of social login, reputation, et cetera, et cetera. And that if identity is broken in the blockchain space, then the whole thing wouldn't work 
So from there, I started to think about identity as this new gateway to data ethics. Uh, and I was drawing deeper and deeper into that, which accumulated in me publishing a book called Identity Reboot, where I am laying out this, this whole new model of how we could think about data privacy and particularly all its interconnecting components. So Arvind, you've been down the rabbit hole, you've been working specifically in automotive and you've written a book. With all that context, tell us a little bit more, what is the importance and the interest of self-sovereign identity specifically and what problems does it look to solve today? Well, self-sovereign identity in its essence, it's a very technical term for a very human thing. So if you place it in a wider context, you could draw the analogy that just as the internet changed how we share information, self-sovereign identity at its essence changes how we control that information. So if you imagine a solar system, you would change the, the center of gravity, the sun, of that particular solar system. And you can imagine the same thing with data. So rather than the companies enjoying a large data gravitas, such as Facebook gathering a lot of data on the users, or Internet of Things devices collecting the data at the sensor level, you are creating this new paradigm where data about an individual is actually traveling across the world with that individual. And you have different layers in this. So the most basic version is that you could make a statement about your name or your date of birth. Then that is a statement that could sit in your own little data universe, if you will. Then you could layer the strength of that statement by, for example, using external verifiers. You could also apply this to the wider data universe. So for example, if you have uh, an insurance company, you could give them selective access to, for example, your Fitbit data. Or if you would store your digital media in your little data universe, you could give access to that, um, to, for example, your private circle. But the very first step, which is turning out to be hard enough, is giving identity owners, so people like you and me, the control to make verifiable claims. Those are claims could be inherent to us, like our name. They could be assigned, like citizenship, or they could be accumulated, like education. So this is the very first layer. Then on top of that, you could add customizable rules. So you could access information A under condition B, and all that whole chain can then be decentrally verified and multi-directionally used. And in a nutshell, that's self-sovereign identity. That's a great introduction. And it sounds like there's a lot of work in that. I'd love to unpick it a little bit because it sounds like a complex ecosystem to curate. And there's a bunch of barriers there, right? In terms of who controls the data, what the current process is today. Oh, there, there, there are loads of challenges. Um, so self-sovereign identity, for all its perks and benefits, at the end of the day, it's not magic. So many in the community are obviously guilting of conflating problems. So I, I personally see identity as the gateway to data ethics, but obviously it does not envelop or 
should it, like all possible ethics. So let me give you a couple of examples. You can imagine that if you have a certain selection of verified claims about an individual, that if you are a company and you're using those particular claims, you could make the assumption that that would reduce the risk of fraud. But intuitively, it would not reduce all types of fraud. So identity fraud could still exist, but if you go directly to the roots of that particular individual, it is a lot less likely. But if you imagine someone stealing the keys of that particular person, you could definitely still think of edge cases where fraud could take place. So to give you another example, an often cited benefit is the reduced cost of duplication. So if bank A verifies that my name is indeed Arben, bank B doesn't have to go through the same ordeal, and retailer C definitely does not need to do it because the banks who are specialized in such things have already done it. But what that doesn't take into account is that decentralization in and of itself, by its very nature, also carries a cost. The cost of running the notes, the cost of the various transactions, depending how you set it up, gas, the cost of actually executing the various actions that come with running a protocol. And then a final objection that I might raise is that although it could take the fuel out of the more extractive data business models that we're all very familiar with if we look at the headlines recently, it does not prescribe a solution to data processing requirements on the back end. If you give your data freely away, um, leaks can still happen. Or if someone is paying you to donate your data and you accept those conditions, that still means that your data is out there and you are forgoing the right to what it will be used for. So to sum that all up, I don't think that self-sovereign identity, no matter how cool it is, and I think it's cool, I don't think it will benefit from overblown claims. The biggest benefit of self-sovereign identity is interoperability, and that interoperability has two different facets. So it has a philosophy dimension and it has a technological dimension. So as self-sovereign identity is a technical solution to be interoperable and be able to talk to really to other technical components, uh, which is an overlay to most of the, the products and services currently and institutions in society, it also has a philosophical dimension that if individuals have a deeper relationship with their data, if they would actually control it, then they set the terms for their own interaction with society. And that is a very big shift. Because if you look at the alternative, that would mean that this technical capability, this philosophical, this ethical capability would consequently be missing. And we would always rely on third parties to tell us who we are. There's a whole bunch in there that I want to pick up on because I think when you said overblown claims, I think that's a big part of it, especially in the current climate around COVID. I'm going to date the podcast by mentioning it, but people do say self-sovereign identity is the way to get us back into work. Self-sovereign identity is going to solve the COVID crisis, which it might it will provide some capabilities that if we were able to curate a network where we can share health data, where we can share personal data, it might make verification of somebody's status much, much easier to do. 
But as you described, curating those networks, bringing those parties together, doing the technological and also the process transformation behind enabling those sorts of capabilities, the wallets, the data exchange, the permissions, the regulatory, the legal behind it, that's a really, really complex thing to do. And in my view, self-sovereign identity networks are some of the hardest to establish. Also, I love that you mentioned the relationship we have with our data. And my immediate reference to that is because data is the new oil, or people say that data is the new oil, the parallel between data and money. And there's any number of surveys out there that says our relationship with money, our ability to manage money, our use of mobile apps, our banking apps are pretty immature across a number of different markets. And if we're barely able to manage our finances, if we can't get that bit right, what chance do we have of managing the complex and multifaceted levels of data that we have to manage about ourselves? So you've got a user experience challenge there too. And there's so much to go into. I really don't want to go to too much depth. So let's talk about the technology that enables it because this is a blockchain show. We heard a talk about why blockchain won't save the world, but how it might be able to help. Why do you think blockchain is such a good technology to use when it comes to self-sovereign identity? Before I go into why blockchain is an appropriate technology for particularly self-sovereign identity, I just have to react to one of the points that you, you just mentioned, and that is the role of self-sovereign identity in the COVID-19 world. To me, I'm definitely dating the podcast now. I cannot believe we're just one month in to the current pandemic. And I just cannot believe how much the world has already changed. And I completely agree that adoption of such radical paradigm shifts need catalyst. And this could well be a very powerful catalyst for self-sovereign identity. But as we, as we develop this, um, I think we should be cautious for partial solutions. So for example, let's say that we develop a type of self-sovereign identity powered contact tracing app. The contact tracing apps that are currently on the table use often clever combination of Bluetooth proximity powered sensing, meaning in theory, my device, my Bluetooth device would communicate with other devices with Bluetooth enabled around it, tracking how far the devices are removed and for how long these devices are in proximity to each other. Now, by that, in theory, you could create, as the name suggests, a map of your various contacts. And from there, you could potentially infer the risk profile of that particular individual. If someone in your network is tested positive, a push notification is set out using a various tier of cryptographic keys to do so. And then you get the, the alert, the corona alert, as it's now collegially called, that uh, someone in your network is tested positive for COVID-19. Now, some countries have already started to attach the calculated status of each individual to more, a more visual representation. So in China, for example, there are no, now three types of barcodes. So green is that you're in the clear, yellow prescribes, I believe it's yellow, it could be yellow or orange. So if we go with yellow, yellow would describe um, a self-quarantine period of around a week, and red would mandate some type of quarantine, made it be self-quarantine or quarantine within a facility. 
But the key here is that green barcodes in China are now required to enter, for example, public transport. And what is also worth noting is that more and more shops in response have also started to demand green types of barcodes. So the key takeaway that I want to propose here and the key thing I want to caution for is that even if we build the perfect backend, we build the perfect self-sovereign identity app, that alone, that in and of itself will not save us for what happens on the authorization level. So what data is used for to make other services contingent? So I just needed to get that in before I dive into blockchain technology. I know. And it brings up, as you said, there's a bunch of different societal political challenges around that, right? In terms of the cachet or the privilege that might come with a green versus a red, somebody's ability to work, somebody's ability to access services, the potential risk of fraud or the economic incentive for frauding that system, regardless of whether you have a self-sovereign identity infrastructure in place, the amount of gamification or the amount of people looking to defraud that system because of the benefits they might gain from a green versus a red is a really, really challenging concept. And at a policy level, at a government or a political level, that's a really difficult topic to manage, right? Absolutely. And Actually, The Guardian recently uh, reported on a particularly interesting gaming the system case in South Korea. So in South Korea, if someone is tested positive for COVID-19, the app Corona 100 meters, which as the name suggests, indicates if someone who has been positively diagnosed with Corona has been in a 100 meter radius around you, you get an alert. And this alert specifies not someone's name, but it does give quite a bit of interesting information. It specifies someone's gender. It specifies someone's age, but it also specifies a list by name of restaurants and shops that particular person has visited. So what happened, as your guardian reported, that pranksters or fraudsters, depending how you see it, called up restaurants and shops, threatening that they would falsely report that they would have the virus, and then that no one in turn would visit those restaurants and shops. So an entire blackmailing operation has sprung up around those corona apps, yes. And, and you can imagine, I mean, obviously, somebody has been creative enough to imagine that they can create leverage in that situation. But somebody then at the other end of the spectrum hasn't necessarily thought through how might this technology play out in practice. And there's another part of this, too, when you skirt close to GDPR in terms of, well, that system has somebody's gender, somebody's age, their proximity, where they've been. There's an awful lot of data points there that if you don't manage it carefully, you could very quickly tie that back to an individual or you could have certain knowledge about that person that they don't want you to have. Well, fun fact about GDPR, in times of national emergencies, you could actually suspend part of GDPR. That is part of the body of legislation. So what happened is that actually a couple of countries in Europe, Italy among them, in their national emergency legislation included a clause where they suspend particular aspects of GDPR when responding to the developing health crisis. 
And I can understand the requirement for a government to govern, and you can see that being the case. But now as citizens, and I've been watching and reading an awful lot of societal uproar against some of the invasion of privacy or potential invasion of privacy. On the one hand, yes, you have to manage the crisis, but what that's meaning in terms of doors that have now been opened in terms of data collection or data gathering just around this particular event is pretty concerning. Well, actually, that's a really good bridge to why blockchain is appropriate for self-sovereign identity. So if you look at blockchain technology, it has a couple of characteristics that are blockchain forms and applications. So one characteristic is that there are no conflicting entries. Another characteristic is that it's often append only, meaning that it has often a certain uh, immutability about it. Then a third characteristic is that there is often a form of decentralized consensus. Then a fourth characteristic of blockchain is that there is often room for cryptographic solutions or cryptographic verification in the case of self-sovereign identity. And a fifth and final component often in most blockchain solutions is that there is a multi-stakeholder ecosystem. Now, if you look at the current situation for a digital identity specifically, you have three main proxies to kind of navigate the world. So the first one is your passport. So that would then be your offline proxy. In some cases, it is digitized, but that's the absolute exception. Then there is social login. So every one of us has one of those solutions. So you could think of login with Gmail, login with Facebook, uh, login with LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Importing your preferences extracted from your data profile to the services that you are logging into with the hope by those services that the service will become more relevant and that there is a degree of proof of personhood. If that's actually effective, we, we could debate that. And then the third one is reputation. And here you can think of models such as Airbnb and Uber, for example. So you could think about it as a means of distributed trust. But all these three proxies have significant limitations. If you look at the first one, passports, there is obviously, because it's issued by nation states, a native degree of centralization. But this also means that if a nation state collapses, which still happens in the 21st century, think of Syria, for example, or if a nation state doesn't function as it ought, if you think of Venezuela, for example, then the weight of that passport all of a sudden becomes open to voluntary interpretation, which is a very real, very serious burden to its holder. And it's particularly striking because you cannot choose where you are born. You have to make do with the passport that you get. And then lastly, another limitation for the passport is that it has still a physical character which makes it very unsuitable for identification in the digital world. Now, if you look at the limitations of social login, you can think, very obvious to some, about silos. You can think about fragmented identity. You could think about limited data ownership. It is not possible to give 
a very basic example, to download all the data that Facebook has about you, that step is possible, yes, but then to maybe import it to a rival application, it would mean basically rebuilding the aspects of your identity somewhere around that data set that runs in the many gigabytes all over again and importing that to a new service. So it's, it's, it's tremendously impractical. And then the, the third identity proxy is reputation. And now by its very nature, reputation is subjective. If you go into an Uber and if you just don't really have to click with the person who is in your car, that's a subjective rating. Same for Airbnb. There could also be a case where reputation is vulnerable to social retribution. If someone gave you one star, you're very unlikely, even though you might have been inclined earlier, to respond with a five-star rating. Well, obviously, reputation is free. And if anything is free, it means it can be gained. And there are loads and loads and loads of fun anecdotes about that. But my favorite one is of a guy in London who made his backyard shed the number one rated restaurant in London on TripAdvisor just by clever pictures, uh, by cleverly playing the algorithm. Um, and then lastly, uh, reputation is tremendously unforgiving. So if you look at the social credit score in China, as soon as you get into a negative reputation-based loop, it can be tremendously difficult to get out. And then in that particular situation, reputation is attached to real-world consequences that can be that can be very striking if you cannot use public transport anymore or if you are rejected for the university that you're applying for. So if we take a step back, we can see that for many reasons, the current system around identity is incomplete. And to me personally, I would conclude that it's insufficient for the emerging needs that we have to address in the 21st century. So if we go back to blockchain technology, if we recenter this entire ecosystem around the individual, we will need multiple stakeholders because we will need multiple issuing parties of particular claims. We will need multiple verifying parties verifying those particular claims. And we will also need a lot of the UI and the UX solutions that you previously mentioned to make this whole process accessible to individuals and everything that comes around that. We will need key management. We will need onboarding expertise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the streams that we currently see in the internet around UI and UX and onboarding and verification, we can use that, but it will look completely different. Now, the problem of blockchain technology with self-sovereign identity is governance. It's very tricky, and I see this all the time in my work, to agree on governance. So for example, in order for the attestation to hold, do you need consensus between all parties or just the transaction parties? Is governance too prescriptive or is it too loose? Like in both cases, it will not work because one will stifle the ecosystem and the other one 
will absolutely let it spin out of control. No one will adopt it. And if we take another step back, then we see what I outlined at the very beginning, that blockchains are in fact feature sets. There are in fact design decisions. In the end of the day, what makes them self-organizing and what self-sovereign identity will definitely need is the governance. What are the rules that everyone can agree to in order to participate? And there's actually a really helpful distinction between cryptographic and human trust that a sovereign foundation proposes, if I can get into that. Yeah, of course, absolutely. I'd love to double click on Sovereign because I know they've been pioneering a lot of the work in self-sovereign identity. But what you're describing so far is I think there's a number of different levels to what we're trying to create here or how we're trying to solve and address problems. One is a data privacy challenge is we're trying to take the data away or we're trying to protect people's rights, their, protect their identity, protect information that is theirs and that is inherently theirs and others shouldn't necessarily have access to. We're trying to create new social systems or trying to create new ways of, of living or new ways of doing things based on data. And we're trying to do that in an ethical way. But as your Chinese example, and also there's a great Black Mirror episode on social scoring, which again in concept is designed to encourage good behavior, but at the other end of the spectrum, you see a horrible spiral of what happens when things don't go right, as you describe. And then we're also trying to enable new models of working, new entities to come online. If you talk about vehicles, as you did at the beginning of the show, how do we allow AIs or machines or IoT devices to talk with each other? The critical part of any network where there are objects and entities is, is an identity, is what is it? What does it do? What does it own? What has it done? How do I verify that it is who it says it is? All of these different layers we're trying to solve for, you know, at a basic level, we just start with, I don't want Google to have too much of my data. But at another level, we're trying to talk about how people live their lives and their ability to get access to funding or to get on the bus. It's a really deep topic. And thank you so much for the examples, because I think it really helps to bring the magnitude of this particular topic to life, because I don't think it's simple. And just by waving the SSI self-sovereign identity wand isn't going to fix everything immediately. And what I'd love for people to take away from this show is how much complexity there is in and around identity management. And I think you're capturing it really nicely. I'll let you crack on to Sovereign, though, because I know you want to tell us more about the work that they've done. I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head there. Like, it is not easy. And if you think about, okay, let, let me backtrack for one second. So the Sovereign Network makes, in my mind, a very helpful distinction between cryptographic and human trusts. And this is something that is inherent, again, to most blockchain ecosystems. The cryptographic trust is often located on the ledger level. And in this particular case, the public ledger capturing the decentralized identity or attestation status. Then on top of that, you have a type of communication protocol layer. Then human trust is layered on top of that. So the human trust layer is the credential exchange between the stakeholders we previously discussed, the holder, the issuer, and the verifier. And then on top of that, you have the governance framework. And now the last part is where it often goes wrong, because what self-sovereign identity pilots tend to test is layer one, two, and three. Does the ledger work? Does the communication protocol work? And does the exchange work between 
the holder, the issuer, and the verifier. But what it doesn't ask, if you're just cascading with one or two organizations, is if 100 organizations or institutions or companies can all come together and agree on this particular governance. And where it becomes even more complicated is that there is a form of governance on every single one of those levels. So for example, public ledgers make design choices. Like in the end of the day, there is always somebody hosting the nodes. The structure of the DITCOM network has implications for the scope of what the DIT itself can contain. And credential exchange and how actors interact requires a whole host of governance guidelines to ensure smooth sailing. And if you overlay that complication with everything that you just mentioned, and you explore all the different iterations and expressions of self-sovereign identity, then it becomes really clear how complex this is. There's a lot to it. And as we've said, we're in violent agreement that this is a difficult space to work in. And to my knowledge, self-sovereign identity implementations have been relatively rare. Lots of discussion of the technology's capabilities, but practical implementations have been relatively limited. What more do you think needs to be done to accelerate adoption or to encourage more organizations, governments, networks to participate with this sort of technology? Well, I think that everyone struggles with meaningful and justified questions. So governments struggle with the question, is it secure? Is it secure enough to roll out to all my citizens this entirely new way of managing data, of managing their identity? Then if they decide that it might be, do they have the internal expertise to execute on that? And what we shouldn't forget and maybe sympathize with a little bit is that governments have a very long development timeline. They are not just, sorry, they're not just planning their roadmap based on the time it takes to develop this solution from the lab to the hands of the user. In parallel, they are considering the implications for regulation because they're government. So it's more apt to think of governments like oil tankers. They're big, they move slow, but when they turn, they turn decisively. And what is more, they cannot go back. So when they turn, they need to be damn sure that this is indeed the path for them to follow. Companies struggle with different questions. The main one being, is privacy really a business model? And the challenge, which we just saw, is that pilots do not test in the end of the day if the business model and government actually works. Now, I think we can convincingly argue that privacy is indeed a business model, and I hope we get to that later. And then for individuals, their main question is that does this actually work? Self-sovereign identity is completely useless if it doesn't work, if the skill is not there for it to work. And now you might be more willing to experiment with like this new remote working software uh, in times of a pandemic than using this particular time to experiment with deeply personal information. Now, how are we going to move forward? I think there are two key categories that we can think of. So the first one is that there is a distinct role for government to play. And the second category is that business models need to be proven. Well, if we look at the first one, 
there's actually precedent for this. We talked previously about adoption catalysts. Now, Estonia, a country in the Baltics, was hacked in 2007. Most of the public government infrastructure was hit by a massive DDoS attack, completely flatlining a lot of the digital outlets that were available. That served as a catalyst for what ultimately became the e-residency program. So in 2007, they were the target of the massive cyber attack. In 2008, the government begins with experimenting and testing a technology that we only now call blockchain. So the Estonians refer to it first as hash-linked timestamping, which if you think about it, is maybe a more intuitive term than blockchain technology. It's a nice one, but it doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. It's a very niche audience. <laughs> so in 2012, hash-linked timestamping or blockchain is in operational use in many of Estonia's registries, uh, among which the national health, judicial, legislative security, and commercial code systems. 2013, so this is moving pretty quickly, especially for governments, there's the launch of Estonian e-identity. And now I believe over 95% of all Estonian residents have a form of that. Then 2015, there is a launch of the e-residency, and also, this actually is the, the reason why a lot of blockchain companies have roots in Estonia, because it was possible to remotely set up a business there via the e-residency program. And in summer 2017, the rumors about a type of Estcoin were about to start. So you could see that in just a decade, a governmental oil tanker could turn. And when it turns, it definitely turns decisively. Now, if we place self-sovereign identity in the current time frame, in the, our current reality, there is a chance, a very real chance, that governments are going to view this pandemic as a catalyst for more reliable, more robust, and more secure individual-centric data identification solutions. And that's really interesting because oftentimes it happens in the public sector as much as it does in the private, that it takes a crisis or it takes a breach or it takes a material challenge that was unforeseen or unprepared for to actually drive change. Regardless of whether we had the capabilities before, it's not until something goes horribly wrong that we actually take the opportunity to change. And I think you're arguing that what we've learned in terms of our ability to manage the COVID crisis is a way of the government's taking that incentive to look at, are we managing data? Are we managing citizens' information? Are we managing the way that our economies work in a way that's effective or that could survive another similar incident in the future? Exactly, 100%. Which brings us to the second category, what is needed for business to move? Well, first and foremost, it needs to be proven that having a privacy-forward mindset actually makes money. Now, before the pandemic, Cisco already published a report, uh, which is quite interesting. It's called the 2020 Data Privacy Study. And it was drawing on data from over 2,800 organizations in a multitude of countries to specifically show ROI on privacy. Now, what the report found is that around 70% of organizations 
said that they received significant business benefits from privacy beyond compliance, compliance being the obvious one, which was up over 40% in 2019. And what it also found, which I think is worth mentioning, is that organizations on average receive benefits of 2.7 times their investment. And more than 40% are seeing benefits that are at least twice of their privacy spent. Now this, one, proves that privacy forward solutions are indeed a type of business model. And two, this does not yet take into account all the benefits and business models that I think self-sovereign identity brings with it. So with self-sovereign identity specifically, there's a whole subsector for a category of actors I call trust brokers, which you could see as the issuers of identity. I think here there is a specifically interesting role to play for banks, for example. I think banks are in an excellent position to issue a credential on someone's proof of address, which could then be reused for a number of different applications. I think there is a tremendously profitable and interesting niche for cryptographic key management solutions. You could think of fragments of cryptographic keys. You could think of advanced key functionalities or advanced structures. So for example, agents who own agents who own agents. And why I think it's so profitable is actually that key management is the first thing you should do in your risk assessment for any SSI pilot, because key management is the major vulnerability. Everything off chain is the weakness and keys at the end of the day are the interlocking principle between all these transactions. So even if you build the best protocol in the world, if someone has poor key management on the other end, most of your information in that transaction is still at risk. Got you. And so regardless of how sovereign the data is and how much of it you have permission over of what you do with, if someone gets access to your keys in your data store, it's no better than it was before in someone else's centralized database. Exactly. 100%. Then an another business opportunity, and there are really many, um, is, for example, rented logic. And this might sound a bit sci-fi, uh, but, it, but it really isn't. If we do create a world where people own their own data and uh, you have a pool of open source or premium algorithms that you could rent to train on your data locally. So the sharings um, stay private, if that's what you opt for. Then you could give this whole new energy to the quantified self movement. All of a sudden, you would actually have your data, and rather than other companies doing clever data science and producing metrics, you could actually do it for yourself, which I think is tremendously interesting, and I don't hear that many people talking about it, strangely enough. I'm also bullish on data provenance solutions. If you can get to the source, and if you can attach a high degree of provenance to that particular source, that dramatically reduces back-end risk, uh, which I think is very interesting then there are entirely new opportunities for the insurance industry to underwrite credentials and so on and so forth. Again, that Cisco report doesn't even take this into account. And that's why I think that there, we're, just, we're just barely scratching the surface of what the business of privacy could be. 
I hear you. And I'm going to raise the flag here because this is blockchain won't save the world and we're not in the business of sci-fi. So what I'd love to do is pivot more towards some of the projects that you've worked on specifically and talk about some of the, the examples and the challenges that on the projects that you've worked with in the real world of some of the initiatives that are happening right now or that you've worked on in the past. I know some of these are sensitive, so you can't tell us everything in detail, but I'd love you to walk through some of the examples of self-sovereign identity projects that you've been involved in and tell us more about what it's like on the inside. Well, a good place to start would probably be the Mobility Open Blockchain Initiative, also called MOBI. MOBI is a consortium for the automotive and wider mobility sector. And its goal is to develop interoperable standards for various use cases within mobility. And I've been personally involved with the vehicle identity component. So whereas this is not SSI for individuals, this is a very important topic because the very reason why Mobi was focused on interoperable technology agnostic standards was the realization that it's tremendously important that of the playbook, everyone shares the same first page. It is important that companies build something that actually works with the other solutions that are coming up. And the reason why this is important is because we are not building new product suites, we're actually building ecosystems. And arriving at these standards already proved to be a daunting task. So to paint a picture, Mobi has the largest OEMs across the world being part of its members. It is over 100 members globally. The members represent around 10% of global GDP. And the member mix itself is also quite diverse. So you're you should think of OEMs next to protocols, smart cities next to token companies. And all of them have to collaborate together to arrive at that shared first page of the manual. Now creating that for vehicle identity, where we even started there with a subsegment of a subsegment. So, of identity, we looked at vehicle identity, and of vehicle identity, we looked at the vehicle birth certificate. And even that vehicle birth certificate already proved to be quite complicated. For one, various organizations use various different accounting methods for, for example, the color of a vehicle or its shape, or how many people could fit in that particular vehicle. What we wanted to arrive at, which we thought was deceptively simple before we even started out, was a simple vehicle birth certificate of where the vehicle was produced, by whom, and what the criteria were when it would leave the, oh, what is the word? The fabric? No, that's not an English word. <laughs> <laughs> so when it leaves the factory, I think, Factory, right? that's a word, yes. <laughs> okay, I will restart that sentence. <laughs> so we thought it was deceptively simple. We thought that we would create a vehicle birth certificate that would capture 
aspects such as color, um, how many people could fit in the car, who was manufacturing the car, etc., etc. So when it would leave the factory, just like a person, it would have a type of passport, a type of birth certificate at its very minimum. But because of all these internal complexities between companies, between borders, between jurisdictions, between regulations, that, uh, that very small piece of the puzzle was actually an effort uh, that took us over a year to produce the, the first version of those standards. And I'm happy to say that they are currently in production in, in a pilot. But that's again the second phase. So first you have to get everyone to sit around the same table. Then you need to agree on what you're going to do. Then you actually need to do it. Then you need to quality check what you just have done. Then you need to test it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we are talking about multi-year developments and iteration cycles. And that does make it more tricky. And that's a familiar blockchain problem, right? Is regardless of whether you're talking about an identity solution or a trading solution or a provenance solution, first you have to agree, what is it? What are the standards? What are the objects? What data are we capturing? And particularly if you're talking about having 100 parties together agreeing on that, maybe there's going to be some alignment, but it's still going to take a while to shake out. So I don't know if it's refreshing to hear, but it's beginning to become a common theme that one of the main challenges around these decentralized networks is standards. I do believe that standards are absolutely key. Um, and what I think is missing currently in the identity ecosystem is for, for self-sovereign identity, for identity around people specifically, to me, there isn't yet this comprehensive enough unifying identity metasystem framework on a governance level that everyone can get behind. They're very promising local initiatives, but I haven't yet seen a group of people string it all together in a way that makes sense and is future-proof. Uh, because another learning from the Moby case that I just described is that you do need, because it is a multi-year development and iteration cycle, you do need a certain degree of flexibility. And that is the part that scares governments. Because you can start something and it might not end where you think it will end. Interesting. And I know a mix of your work has been public sector as well as private. I wonder, in your experience, how does an engagement with a government or multiple governments look different to the work you've done with Moby? Government uh, comes with a different form of stakeholder management. There are commissions, the commissions are reporting to other commissions. It is a more complex accountability structure. And because public money is being used, it is fair that every step needs to be accounted for. And that takes time. So yeah, the first takeaway is that innovation takes longer. The second takeaway would be that more education is needed. So working with government is not a one-person job. You need a team to provide the training, to provide the background on, first of all, what is blockchain technology? Second of all, what is the current lay of the land of identification? Then where does self-sovereign identity come in? Then how can self-sovereign identity be applied within that particular country? What are the benefits 
what are the potential risks, what are the potential downsides, where would you need to compromise. Then you would need to get into the resourcing of such a project. What are other relevant governance restrictions that might be in place locally or internationally or within a certain trading block? So the constraints are harder, let's say. Uh, they won't be voted away by a board. But the potential impact, I would argue, is larger too. And I think that is very encouraging. One of my favorite blockchain projects, which I haven't been involved with personally, but I, I have admired them from afar, is the, the World Food Program. The World Food Program distributes uh, food to those in need, over 80 million people in over 80 countries. And their flagship blockchain program is Building Blocks. And the way they have rolled out Building Blocks gives me hope <laughs> for, for governments and, uh, and institutions. So the, the basic premise is this. Building Blocks is focused on cash-based interventions as, as they are called. And what they were looking for was a type of blockchain solution, and mind you, this already started in 2017, that would provide them with a degree of accountability, so they have accountability again, as well as efficiencies. Um, and we know that government is not necessarily famous for being efficient. So what they did was that they started with a small scale pilot. And this was January 2017 in Pakistan. And they started with a pilot involving around 100 people. So it's more of a POC actually. And they used a public Ethereum blockchain. And they also used a type of one-time password SMS-based solution for identification. Now, if you combine those two, small pilot one, public blockchain, which could indicate lower transaction throughput and higher cost, and an SMS-based verification, you are running into problems such as a smartphone or phone in general penetration. So they iterated quite quickly. So in May 2017, the pilot group from 100 people in Pakistan to 10,000 Syrian refugees in camps in Jordan. The public blockchain was replaced with a private permission blockchain using a parity Ethereum type solution with proof of authority consensus, which therefore could result in higher transaction throughput and lower transaction cost. And they also replaced the one-time SMS solution with iris biometric authentication powered by the UN Refugee Agency. Then they iterated yet again in January 2018. So then they onboarded over 100,000 Syrian refugees. Uh, this is just over half a year later in the Jordan camps. And what they realized then is that refugees in such camps often have more than one organization assisting the same beneficiaries. And it's not just one, it's not two, it's not three. They actually found that over 45 organizations talk about a multi-stakeholder ecosystem were assisting refugees needing aid in those particular camps. So what is illustrated is that, first of all, all those various systems were not meaningfully connected, and they were actually crying out for a solution that would be able to 
arrive at a decentralized form of consensus with a higher throughput time on a public permission network that would be interoperable. So that's also why it was a breakthrough that in June 2019, the UN Women joined the Building Blocks Network. So to me, this is an excellent publicly available pilot that can be studied and learned from of how government and public sector could effectively innovate. That's a really great example. And I think it points to a few learnings as well in terms of the number of stakeholders, in terms of discovering something as you go through the pilot that you might not have foreseen, the challenge between public and private blockchains and what are the functional requirements of your network, interoperability, because there'll be a number of other similar networks in different geographies that are probably going to be trying to address the same thing, and then also atop all of those things, governance. And while I don't want to be despondent, I don't want to be negative about any of these things, there's clearly potential and there are people working hard, but these are not solutions that you can turn over in two or three months with a pilot. There's some really significant structural change here. I want to try and bring it back because we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about politics, we've talked about philosophy, ethics, technical, we've talked about automotive, we've talked about refugees. There's been a whole broad range against which identity and the management of identity and the management of identity intersects. I'd love you to try and break it down just in terms of where do you see the greatest potential for self-sovereign identity? What's the use case that you would be most interested to see happen? The one that you think is most valuable to the world? And maybe the final one is, what are you most passionate to see come into production? I think, yes, I think those are three different answers. So what I think would be most valuable to enterprise is a type of trust broker business model. I do think this is a huge opportunity for banks and universities to issue trusted credentials and maybe even to a lesser extent, telecom. I think that has the potential to be a sustainable, equitable, and profitable business. The second question of what SSI implementation I think would have most impact to the world, I would have to say banking the unbanked. And it's really hard not to talk about Libra there. So I think that the reaction of the world to Libra, this is around a, a year ago, right? Libra published their, their white paper around a year ago, is illustrating how hypersensitive identity is to both governments as well as businesses for very different reasons. Governments could protect their citizens and business could protect the data that they already hold around people. But if we can find a way, an ethical, sustainable way to roll out self-sovereign identity to the unbanked, I think that would have a meaningful impact and addition to society. And then the last question, the, the one I'm most passionate about. And if I'm really honest, to me, self-sovereign identity is about the whole thing. I think you can think of hundreds, if not thousands of niche applications. And there will be. Just because the internet was not set out to create Google or Facebook, but these things just emerged as it Uber and Airbnb, I can completely see that blockchain technology will give rise to a whole myriad of applications, identity among them. And I actually think the more specific identity becomes, 
the more attractive the business model becomes that sits behind it. But that's another story. What I want to work on, what I want to contribute to is to the whole framework, to the foundation, to make sure that the right pieces are in place to let other people build on top of that. And what I wish for most of all is for the whole thing to lift off and hopefully to together create a more healthy way to think about data, a way that actually treats individuals with with dignity. It's a very positive outlook, and I know it's a rocky road ahead, but I'm really grateful that you shared all of the examples, all of your ideas, and I hope that people listening to this show over the course of an hour can hopefully get themselves a little bit more informed and a little bit more interested and passionate about the potential that we have around identity management and self-sovereign identity. There's going to be some challenges, though, for sure, and those incumbents or those in the current position of holding this data that may not necessarily be an asset they hold in the future it might be a challenging position for them. And as we were talking about oil tankers and talking about banks and talking about data, the thought occurs to me, if data is the new oil, is self-sovereign identity the Tesla electric battery for that particular model? Well, <laughs> so I've never heard that one before, but I think, I think we should be very clear. I think that our current way of thinking about data has problems. And I think that these problems are already mature. In the same way, self-sovereign identity has problems and challenges. And these are, as of yet, immature. So what we can be sure of is that more challenges will arise. But I would argue and believe strongly that ultimately, self-sovereign identity could add up to a better way. I love that. Thank you very much for contributing to the body of knowledge. Thank you very much for bringing your experience to bear. Before we close out the show, I want to ask, how can people find out more about what you're doing? How can people connect with you? And what else have you got going on in your life? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. I've been thinking about identity at length, and I did recently publish a book about it called Identity Reboot, Reimagining Data Privacy for the 21st Century, which you can find on Amazon. I'm always happy to connect with people who are building, people who are innovating. I have a particular soft spot for everyone working in the public sector, policymakers that want to learn. So to all those people, please feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. I'm really looking forward to talk to you. Fantastic. And in the current environment, I suspect a lot of people are questioning their current approach to identity or data management in this particular time of crisis. I hope that the phone will be ringing off the hook in the coming weeks and months, and I hope that your experience can help benefit others out there. Arvind, thank you so much again for coming on the show, and I hope our paths cross again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, Stay safe out there.